verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we know what revival is. Revival is the normal work of the gospel. It's not something different that we do. It's not a sidebar we build out. It is the normal, weekly, rugged, steady, faithful, prayer-saturated work of the gospel getting traction in us with extraordinary power from above, power that cannot be accounted for in terms of the preacher or the band or the people or anything else except God. Revival is is all of us weak Christians and ordinary churches going into warp speed with a joy and a power that we did not create but came down from God. We don't work it up by our amazingness. God sends it down by his grace. Now, if that's what revival is, how does it actually happen? What is the channel or the avenue or the mechanism through which God sends down his power and presence? And the answer is the gospel and especially the doctrine of God's grace. There is nothing like God's grace to surprise us and unsettle us and rearrange us and crack our hearts open all over again as if for the first time. I never quite get used to God's grace toward me. I believe it, and yet I don't believe it. And when I see it clearly, every time it's as if I've never heard this before. That's powerful. And there's not enough of that in this world. The gospel is all about grace from above. Everything desirable, everything sustainable, everything humane, And hopeful begins with grace from above. In one sense, right now, our world here below is full of grace. What I mean is that people are forgiving one another. And people are being kind to one another. And people are making room for one another and so forth. But it's all conditional. 
And if you don't measure up, then you don't get the grace. Families and friends and neighbors and colleagues and co-workers and teammates and so forth, everyone is showing grace as long as you meet the conditions. But then conditional grace isn't grace. And the truth is, our world is merciless. Look at the internet. Conditional grace is no grace at all. So we want now to go back to God's grace, which is powerful for good. Real grace is only for those who don't meet the conditions. Those who have no excuses left. It is only for the undeserving, the weak, the slow to get it. God gives his grace only to those who fall short. I love what Martin Luther wrote. Luther said, God receives none but those who are forsaken. Restores health to none but those who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind. And life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched. And gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Huh. So the opposite of grace is disgrace. Disgrace excludes and shames and punishes and stigmatizes. Grace includes and honors and rewards. I believe our world has way too much disgrace. So not enough grace. Have you ever seen a family or a church or a neighborhood or a city where there's too much freedom from the past? Too much reconciliation, too much encouragement, too much hope for the future, too much mercy, too much space for sinners to relax and breathe and rethink their lives at a deep level. I've never seen too much of that. The gospel of Jesus is perfect for creating it. The grace of God is perfect for burned out, exhausted, fed up sinners who refuse to play a religious game but are open to God's grace and even open to revival. So we want to look at these amazing words here in Romans chapter 3 that declare to us God's foreign policy toward this world for all who will receive it. God's declaration of peace and not war toward failures and weaklings and drunks and foot-draggers and refugees from religious disgrace. Look what the Bible says here at the end of verse 22. There is no distinction. (laughs) Wait a minute. I hate that. No distinction... I've spent my whole lifetime making sure there's a distinction. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So, hmm. The way he heaps terms upon terms there at the end, by his grace as a gift, unconditional grace is the whole point, guys. The Bible is talking about God's grace in justification. 
My son, Dane, was reminding me on, in a phone call this week that in 1735, there was a, a season of revival in Jonathan Edwards' church in New England before the Great Awakening in 1740. And it came about because Jonathan Edwards preached a whole series of sermons on justification by faith alone. And, and the people were undone. Justification by faith alone. The full f- formula, of course, is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all our works. That is to say, apart from all our distinctions, apart from all our, our, our ministries, apart from all our amazingness, apart from all I'm better than the next guy, apart from all the reasons why God really should be nice to me. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all our works, all our merits, all our deservings, it all gets swept away. And what replaces not not only what forgives our sins, but what replaces our righteousness is Christ alone, whom we receive with the empty hands of faith. When that lands on us, there's power there. God's grace and justification is more urgently relevant than most people give it credit for. The reality is every day, everyone wakes up feeling incomplete, feeling insignificant, feeling excluded, feeling on the outside of things, feeling that full approval is still out of reach, And what we have to do that day is not just work a job or raise kids or not just earn A's in school or make the first string on the team or get accepted into that grad program. What's really going on way down deep is us earning and re-earning our justification every day. We deeply long for release from disgrace and entrance into grace. That is justification. We just don't connect that sort of negative energy that we're feeling all the time, every day, everybody on the face of the earth is living out this melodrama every day. We don't connect that experience with this theological word justification. But that is the whole point. In the gospel, God is not asking us to appreciate a gift of marginal relevance. He is offering us what we intensely desire. Here's Cynthia Heimel, back in the 1990s, wrote a book entitled, If You Can't Live Without Me, Why Aren't You Dead Yet? (laughs) In that book, she says this, The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings with whom you could might... You could have lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon. But now that they've become supreme beings, their wrath is awful. It's not what they had in mind. The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now they were adored, invincible, magic. The morning after the night each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose of barbiturates. All their fantasies had been realized yet their reality was just the same. 
If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and ha-ha happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. So I wonder, I wonder how you would fill in the blank in this question. I will finally arrive when fill in the blank happens. I will finally arrive when fill in the blank is finally mine. So what would have to happen to you What does your arrival look like? What would have to happen for you, finally, to feel complete, significant, included, identified with the people who matter, and so forth? What does arrival look like to you and to me? John in Nashville, it's a record contract. I've got a friend in the music business. He told me you literally have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than getting a record contract. (laughs) Nashville is filled with amazingly talented musicians working jobs at Starbucks. Nashville is a smiling rollicking, talented, heartbroken city where amazing people are a dime a dozen. That's crushing. So whether it's a record contract or a dream job or a PhD or lakefront property or romance, or perfect children, or whatever. Everybody is looking for something to justify their existence and make everything okay. And that explains this raging desire down inside every one of us, explains why every now and then we do something really Crazy. When Jesus is not our gracious justification, we start living at the mercy of our crazy desires. And our wacko desires have no restraint. Our wacko desires mistreat us. They don't keep their promises when we satisfy them, and they punish us when we fail them. And our desires get us mistreating others because our godlike desires demand blood sacrifice. If my crazy, raging, desirous heart doesn't get satisfaction, doesn't feel justified, somebody's going to pay for it.
There's going to be a scapegoat. So we blame others for our own misery. We demand that they pay for our sins by their blood. We make someone else into the scapegoat for our own self-loathing. No wonder the world is a mess. Smiling, rollicking, talented, mess. And what I'm saying is this. Every moment we are reaching out to others for our justification. Jesus is reaching out to us with grace from above. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. Not if we have Jesus. Because what he does is, in justification, he takes our broken story and writes it into his complete story. It's called union with Christ. He retells our story in a way that will not leave us empty and angry. God's answer to our hunger of soul is a new justification, a new location, a new identity. Jesus living a perfect life for us and Jesus dying an atoning death for us. Everybody's looking for a scapegoat, somebody to blame for our misery. And Jesus stands up and says, I'll be your scapegoat. I'll take the blame. God's answer to our desire is when, as verse 24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. And when God declares over us a positive verdict up front based on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, we're finally free to stop being mad at the world. We're finally free to stop elbowing others out of the way. We're free to stop posing. We relax. We breathe again. We can start loving God. We can start loving others, serving them. The gospel of justification by faith alone, this biblical message, is the most neglected answer to our most urgent personal need and is always Powerful for revival. I mean, I'm just thinking, what if in our church is represented here, what if, oh, thinking out loud, what if the first quarter of 2018 our preaching, our home Bible studies, our Sunday school classes and so forth, all focused on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all our works. What if we just stared at that for three months and looked at it from different angles of vision? Isaiah 53, Romans 3, Romans 8, and so forth. What if we just did that? I mean, how could that go badly? (laughs) I can trace my own story personally as really it's... um, a sequence of attempts at self-justification. When I was in high school, I wasn't a very good athlete. I thought, oh man, if I got on the football team, then I'd be cool. And then at some point along the way, my body finally kicked into gear. I did make the team. I did succeed. Just about that time, all the ground rules changed in youth culture, and being a jock didn't matter anymore. Now you had to be a hippie. 
So I thought, oh, man, okay, I can do that too. I can be a, good, I can be a hippie, and, and I was a good hippie. Just about that time, God called me into the ministry, so I had to go to grad school, so I had to be a student, so, oh, man. <sighs> okay, I'll do that, too. I guess that's next, and I did okay. I didn't realize that through it all, at a deeply personal level, I was trying to escape the me I didn't want, and I was searching for the better me that was still out there somewhere. And my story has been all about searching for an okayness I deeply felt I did not have. And I felt that all my peers were my judge and jury. And if I could just satisfy them, their positive verdict would be my justification. Not realizing God had already spoken to this 2,000 years ago. And I was oblivious to what God had done. The most revealing question in my life and in yours, moment by moment, is what we're banking on for our justification. Do I have to keep proving myself, or am I resting in Jesus as my complete new self, and all the reason I need to be okay with God, and with myself, and with everybody else? And until my heart finds rest in Jesus as my justification, having nothing to do with my own impressiveness, having nothing to do with my own accomplishments. All of that matters. It's just in a completely different category, far less urgent. Justification. This is crisis. This is DEFCON 5. Until Jesus is that to me, I can never relax, and I will always be shocked at the compromises I'll cave to. I will never understand why I keep doing these ridiculous things. So here's what God wants every one of us to do today. Just believe what Jesus said on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. Don't tell me you believe that. You, you so don't believe that. I mean, you do, kind of. You know, I, I believe that on a good day for maybe five minutes at a stretch. Then I stop disbelieving it. I go back to self-justification. Revival is going there and staying there for a while. Gerhard Forda, the uh, Lutheran theologian, <laughs> helps us understand God declaring okayness over our non-okayness. And here's how he put it. We are justified freely for Christ's sake by faith without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit, or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The gospel's answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still, shut up, and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty, Creator and Redeemer, is saying to this world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. I never get used to that. What if we actually went and told the people in our churches, what you need to do is stop striving. 
What if as a pastor, I go back to Emanuel Nashville and I say, here's what, I'm going to call a moratorium on challenge. I think that's the word pastors love to use. I'm going to challenge you now. This is going to be challenging. I, I, I have had it up to here with challenge. I walk into church, I'm exhausted, I'm guilty, I'm already falling short, and the pastor wants to beat me up by challenging me to do better, try harder. Where is justification by faith alone in that? Let's call a moratorium on challenge and for one whole year talk to people about the all-sufficiency of Jesus. How could that not go well? What if we dared to believe Jesus is enough for everybody? What if we preach that way, lead that way, and just rejoice in the Lord? It would take our people nine months just to detox. (laughs) They would not believe it for nine months. And then we get three months of traction. Which is worth 30 years of otherwise ministry. God is saying to his people today, this is what he wants to say through us. Dear one, you are received. You are forgiven. You are complete. It is finished. Listen. Believe. Breathe. Heal. Rejoice. So let's look at uh, starting right at the end of verse 22 and just sort of Enjoy these verses together. Verse 22, right at the very end. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what is Paul saying here? He is saying that we all share the same problem. There is no um, stratification. We are all in this together. God sees no distinction between sinners. All have sinned, past tense, and fall short, present tense, of God's glory. God did not create us for mediocrity. God made us for his glory. God made us to reflect back to himself his own magnificence. Think of Adam, the way God created him. Adam was able to get up in the morning look at himself in the mirror while he was shaving and say without irony, without embarrassment, looking at himself in the eye right there in the mirror, say, hmm, I am like God. I am an image and likeness of God's moral beauty. I am going to be a magnificent blessing today. It's going to pour out of me. That's what God created us for. And then Adam and we fell into disgrace. And by now, look at us. Every one of us, we just come up short. We're just not like that. But then, nevertheless, we think, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No distinction? Really? All the times I've said no to compromise, all the times 
I've done my best. It doesn't put me above people who've broken the rules. I mean, we look at bad people and we think, man, I've never done that. Maybe not. But God isn't saying that everyone is equally criminal in the eyes of his law. God is saying everyone is equally sinful in his eyes. He sees how we compare with him in his glory, and he sees how we compare with our better selves we could have been. So when we look at some other sinner and think, I may be bad, but man alive, I've never sunk that low. What's happening is we're justifying ourselves. Somebody else needs to look bad for me to look good. We're elevating ourselves by stepping on somebody else. The worse they look, the better I look. But what sets us free from that mercilessness is a new standing with God by grace from above. Think of the uh, parable of the prodigal son. The two brothers there. The older brother said to the father, I have served you. Could be translated, I have slaved for you. And he had. He really had. But he had no peace with the father. The younger brother said to the father, I am no longer worthy. And he wasn't. And he had peace with the father. It is restoring and freeing for us to admit, I am no longer worthy like everyone else with no distinction. No more comparisons to my own advantage. Dear old Bishop Mole, um, I think he died in 1920, Church of England, evangelical. He said it this way, The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine, and you are on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. So you thankfully give yourself up side by side with them, if they will but come too to be carried to the height of acceptance by the gift of God. And then Martin Luther. Who then can pride himself over against someone else and claim to be better than he, especially in view of the fact that he is always capable of doing exactly the same as the other does, and indeed that he does secretly in his heart before God what the other does openly before men? And so we must never despise anyone who sins but must generously bear with him as a companion in a common misery. We must help one another, just as two people caught in the same swamp assist each other. But if we despise the other, we shall both perish in this swamp. What if the people in our neighborhoods came to realize that's how the churches feel about our city? We're companions in a shared misery. We're slogging through this swamp together. This is so not easy. Let's help each other out. That's the low place before God. I love what Isaiah 57, 15 says, For I'm the high and holy one. I dwell in a high and holy place, God says, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So that's fascinating. Here we know we know two things about God. We know where he does dwell, and we know where he doesn't dwell. God dwells way up high, 
where we can't go, and way down low where we can go, but he does not dwell in the mushy middle where everybody's just kind of sort of okay. He's not there. If we want to know God's presence, we just need to go down lower because that's where he's awaiting us with open arms. Verse 24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. So God gives only what no one deserves. In fact, the word translated as a gift, three words in English, one word in the original text, is also used in John chapter 12, pardon me, John chapter 15, where it's translated, that same word is translated, without a cause. Now, in that passage, in John 15, the Bible says the enemies of Jesus hated him without a cause, for no reason, with no contribution on his part. Here in Romans 3, the Bible uses the same word to say that God loves us without a contribution on our part. We don't cause this. God makes us complete as a gift with no additions from us. We continue to fall short, but God completes us for reasons of his own heart. The Bible says in 1 John, God is love. The Bible never says God is wrath. In other words, it is simply the deepest substratum of God's being. It's God's moral psychology to love, to show mercy, to be compassionate. He does not need to be provoked to love. It just flows out of him. He does have to be provoked and prodded to show wrath. We have to give him reasons to demonstrate wrath, we need to give him no reasons to demonstrate love. Because it's just who he is and who God cannot not be. We do not make God more like God. God is all God needs to be all God is. And he loves to justify the inexcusable as a gift. Freely, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He loves, rejoices, is most motivated by the demonstration of his grace. This is who God is. He does not feel, the devil wants us to believe, God most deeply feels a desire to bring down the hammer. That's the heart of the devil. The truth is, God's deepest heart for us in our need is to shower grace and mercy. So, if that's who God is, all we can do is sort of collapse before him and with a sort of blessed defeat, just let him love us. I think of it this way. Ten feet over there, are God the Father and God the Son standing together, conferring together, talking together. We're over here with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is explaining to us over here what they over there are doing. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is explaining that the Father and the Son are arranging between themselves our arrival at our heart's deepest desires. 
They're working it out on their own, just between the two of them. We're over here. We are the incomplete, the frustrated, the fearful, the angry, the self-righteous. The Father and the Son are over there in infinite love, working on our problem for us, apart from us, with no contribution from us. We are not consulted. We are not needed. The good we've done doesn't help them, and the bad we've done doesn't stop them. The Father and the Son solve it all for us at the cross without our help. And their plan is to pronounce sinners righteous and to pronounce failures successful and to pronounce wanderers welcome and traitors loyal. All owing to the perfection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is over here standing alongside us, pointing to them over there as he writes these words in Romans 3. He's explaining to us what they're doing and what it means for us. And our only part is as we're listening, our jaw drops open and we go, wow. That is the wow of faith. And God says, done. Justification by faith alone. Is that okay with us? <laughs> do we mind being loved like that? We do fall short of the glory of God, but we cannot fall short of the grace of God except by refusing it. It's how revival gets going. In 19, December 1944, World War II ended in the Pacific in August of 1945. December 1944, Second Lieutenant Hiru Onoda of the Japanese Army was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang with a small group of fellow soldiers. His orders were to resist the American advance through the Philippine Islands he was ordered to fight on indefinitely. They left him there. Onoda never got word when World War II ended. He was so isolated and outside the range of communication. He did not know for 30 more years. Hiru Onoda went on fighting World War II on the island of Lubang. He lived in hiding. He came out at night and would steal food from nearby villages. Every now and then, he took a shot at people. About 10 years into it, mid-50s, he found, in some, with some garbage, he found a, a scrap of newspaper with an article about him, about this crazy guy out in the jungle. They, they, we, we think he's a Japanese soldier who doesn't realize the war's over. He thought the article was a trick to get him to surrender. He said, I can see through this. <laughs> the Philippine government, because this man was a continuing menace, flew over the jungle and dropped leaflets telling him the war was over. One time they brought in big loudspeakers and because they wondered, maybe he didn't get the leaflets. So they, 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 they broadcast into the jungle, Onoda, the war is over. 
They even brought his brother down from Japan to stand there at the mic and shout this and say, give up, come on out. He fought on until 1974 when the Japanese government finally sent in his old commanding officer, Major Taniguchi, who went into the jungle, found him, and ordered him to surrender. And he finally gave up. (laughs) His mind was trapped in 1945. He shut out the good news of peace. He lost 30 years of his life hiding in the jungles, fighting a lost cause. (laughs) And we can be like him today. With our thoughts and our feelings trapped in a war that ended long ago. So we, you know, we kind of at home and even at church, kind of defensive and touchy and prickly and even explosive. But the night Jesus was born, the angel stepped up to the microphone and shouted, Peace on earth. It says the heavenly host, the stratia, the army of heaven hit the beachheads of this world and did not declare war, but declared peace. That is God's foreign policy and his heart toward you and me. For 2,000 years, God has been dropping, dropping leaflets of the good news into the jungles of our minds. Telling us that through his cross, Jesus won the victory over everything that's against us. The war is over. (laughs) We can come out of hiding. If we're justified freely by his grace as a gift, we can come out of hiding. And our churches and our brotherhoods can be fellowships of broken sinners talking about what's really going on. Because our justification is no longer at stake. We are in a new post-war world of grace that God has created. It is there. We can step out in surrender and just live in that world. Because that is reality. It's not something our faith activates. It's not something our faith creates. It's something our faith frees us to go enjoy. Because that is reality. And someday when God's purpose is done, all of evil, all of our evil, all of history's evil will shrink to the merest speck of near nothingness floating away forever in the cosmic ocean of God's glory. That's real. And right now we and our churches have the privilege of by faith defying the evil we see both inside ourselves and outside ourselves, and say, I am justified by faith in Christ. That is the new reality. I'm going to go live in that. I'm going to go enjoy that. And when the devil screams in my mind, no, you can't do that because you're so sinful. You're so unworthy. I will say to the devil, sorry, you lose. Jesus wins. Here I go. When a whole church goes there together, that's revival. Let's go get it. Jesus died to give it to us.